Gabe Miller here, and I want to personally thank you for checking out our podcast. And I also want to encourage you to click the subscribe button so that each week's message will automatically show up in your feed. Another great way to stay connected with this is on our website at yourimpactchurch.com and on all of our social media outlets at Your Impact Church. I hope this message today encourages you, inspires you, and challenges you. Let's jump into the message. Maybe not. We'll see. Well, y'all are in trouble. I, I said this last time I preached. I said in the first service that timer back there is my enemy, and second service it's your enemy. And because uh, it's kind of open-ended, and 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 how unfortunate for you, because I only got two thirds of the way through my message, and that's what you get for sleeping in and coming to the light service. So, there you go. Uh, I'm going to do something I did in the beginning of uh, the, the first service because. It's important to me. Um, I can't take Gabe's place, and I don't ever intend to do that. And, and my intention when I come up here is to always uh, say he's the man. And I, I just wanted to share that um, Lori and I, many years ago, when I was uh, still in the ministry and pastoring, I told her that if there, were ever, there was ever a time when I was not pastoring uh, and we were members of a church that I would want to be the pastor's best friend. And what I mean by that, not literally, but that I would be a support to him and encourage him and pray for him and strengthen him and do everything I possibly can to serve him. And you can either be the pastor's best friend or you can be his worst enemy. And I, and I had plenty of those in the four and a half decades that I pastored. Uh, I'm not saying this because I know anything. I don't know anything. I haven't heard anything. No rumors, no gossip, anything like that. Don't think that I'm getting on to anybody. I just know that people are people and people can complain and, and, and gripe and, and so forth. So I just encourage you to have the same attitude to make a decision that you're going to be the pastor's best and Amanda's best friend and, and encourage and strengthen them and pray for them and, and act like you, you, you really, when they get back, just act like it's a big deal because it is a big deal, okay? <laughs> so, um, so I just wanted, that's a, that's a, I called it an impact church service announcement last uh, service, so that's what I, that's a service announcement. I, I am going to try to, share less in the beginning of my introduction than I did the first service because I did leave out a significant part I wanted to share and I really was sad that I didn't get to share that uh, so maybe those who who missed out on the first service can listen to this one uh, I do want to begin with uh, Psalm chapter 84 verses 1 through 4 where David says how lovely is your home O Lord of hosts my soul longs, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out with joy to the living God. How happy are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Father, may these words impart life to us and uh, speak to us and transform us, Lord, and, and bring us home. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> We have become what I, what I grew up with in, in going to Grandma's house on Thanksgiving. We have become Grandma's house. 
and we had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you did too. We had a wonderful time. We had uh, 20, 22, I can't remember how many we had, but uh, I get to where I, I had 14 grandkids and I can't remember all of their names sometimes. Well, I can, but sometimes I, I went in to get on to them one time. There were a bunch of them sitting at the table and they were making a lot of racket and I knew who the instigator was. And I went in there and said, uh, whatever your name is, stop it. <laughs> My dad used to do that even with just four kids. So uh, 14 grandchildren and we, each one of them got to experience our home in Fredericksburg for 20, 21 years. So from the oldest, uh, Emma, uh, she got introduced into that home, and then, and then our, our youngest, Claire, did as well, and, and that was home. And we've heard wonderful stories when cousins get together. It's just, it's just a, an amazing thing, and, and uh, many of them have said we, they miss those times. And so home is, home is a, a place of safety and security and, and love and joy and gladness, and, and guess what? It was God's idea. God, God thought that up. But it's also a place of, can be a place of loneliness and emptiness. After I lost my dad in 2000, the first time I visited uh, my mom's home again, it felt so empty and so lonely because my dad wasn't there. And it had always been a place where I felt very safe and secure. Even as I got older and, and had kids, I just felt very safe there. And, and, and suddenly it felt very lonely and empty. And God felt the same way, and I'll explain this as we go along. Home is important in the scriptures. The, I believe that home is a reflection of God's intention or purpose for man. Let me explain this. God com after God completed the universe and the vastness of all the galaxies and just baffles our minds and we'll never understand and, and co conceive of the vastness of the universe, God shows the little planet earth. David even says this in Psalm, Psalm 8. He said, when I look at the heavens and consider the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You crown with him with glory and honor. And in, 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 a, in the same way of all of the, uh, of the vastness of the universe, God chooses our planet to make himself a home. He chooses earth and he plants a garden and that's his home and that's his sanctuary. And the scripture, uh, Ezekiel later on calls the Garden of Eden the Garden of God because it was God's home. And then God created man not in the garden but outside the garden because in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, the Bible tells us that after God created man, he took the man and he put him into the garden. And why that's important is to show you that God has a home and he brings man into the home. He welcomes us into his home. That's always been God's intention, always been God's desire that there be joy in the home of God or the house of the Lord. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, it says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And that includes God's joy as well. God is delighted. He's joyful when his people come home. When his, just like it's, it was, I know that she shined on Thanksgiving Day because her kids were, or most of her kids were there and, and most of her grandkids were there and, and there was just a, a joy in the house. So those whose, whose home it is, God's home, he was joyful as well when his family is home. And so God created man and I believe this was God's intention from the beginning. I believe it's one of the reasons we were created 
I will always say that we were born to be loved, but we were born to be loved in, in the house of God, in, in God's own home. And so our, our, God's intention for us was to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do I know that that's God's intention? Because whatever God sets out to do, he finishes, right? So if God's intention was in the beginning to bring man into his home and let man become a part of God's home, then we'll find that this is actually how it all ends. And does it? Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 says that it is. The Bible says that the heavenly Jerusalem comes down and God plants that heavenly Jerusalem on earth. And this is what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, finally, it's almost like God says, Finally, look, look, I've done it. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. As God wraps this all up, he says, I've finally done what I intended to do from the very beginning and that is to bring man home. So back in the garden, God has created his, his original house or his sanctuary. Everything was perfect until that pesky Genesis chapter 3 and all of a sudden, it's not so good because man suddenly decides, mm, I want more than this. And so man grasps more, grasps for more than what is in the father's house or the home. He wants more than what God has provided. And so he disobeys God's rule, grasping for more. So Adam sinned and there was an immediate separation. And in the Bible, death is not annihilation, it's separation. And God is now separated from the earth because there's a there's a, 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 a suddenly thorns and thistles and man uh, the, the the earth resists man's cultivation of it there's a separation between Adam and Eve uh, Adam blames Eve blames God but blames Eve as well the woman you gave me did this and there's especially a separation between God and Adam and not only does, God, does Adam feel that because he goes and hides, but God feels that as well because now God walks in the cool of the day, that day. But where is Adam? And God feels that. His companion is not there. Adam and Eve are not there. And so God misses his companions, and God wonders, where is Adam? And this is gut-wrenching for God. I believe this. With all my heart, this is gut-wrenching for God. I, I believe he feels this. I did a sermon a few years ago uh, titled, uh, What Does It Feel Like to Be God? And at the end of that sermon, I proposed a question because we often get this wrong. Does God come to feel what we feel or do we feel what God feels? And so all of this sadness, if, if Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, why is Jeremiah weeping? Because God's weeping. Jeremiah wept because God wept. So we feel what God feels, and so when we feel that emptiness and that loneliness when someone leaves the house, we're feeling what God felt, and so it is gut-wrenching for God, and, and, and the Old Testament describes a God who seems to be desperately seeking for someone who will walk with him. Remember when he told Abraham, Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. That wasn't God ordering Abraham around. He was saying, God, I need somebody to walk with me. I miss that. I've lost that. And so he's looking for someone. God searched for a man. God searched for someone to stand in the gap. God searched. The eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are towards him. And so God is looking for that and he wants that. So now Adam has sinned and now Adam has to leave home. Adam 
leaves the house of God. He, he is exiled, and, and God is now al- left alone in his garden. He's left alone, and he feels that emptiness. The home is empty. I mean, you know, God wants his house to be filled. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 14, verse 23. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. God has always wanted his house to be filled. Now, listen, I, I shared this in the, in the first service. The, the, the story is as much about God as it, as it is about Adam. Uh, I've re- I related this to the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, where the prodigal son, the, young, the younger son, all of a sudden decides, I want more than I have in my father's house. I want what's owed to me, and I want more. I want to go make life on my own. And so he leaves the father's house, and the father's heart is broken, and he feels that emptiness. He's now lost a son. And so he, uh, the, the story implies that he looks down the road every day hoping to see and catch his son coming home day by day. I want to talk about this more later. But let me get back to the garden. So Adam and Eve are exiled, and, and, and I believe every human being that is born after this exile, every, hum, every, every one of us feels that sense of, of loss. It, we feel that sense that we're, we're restless. As Augustine says in uh, his writings, he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you or finds its rest in you so we're all seeking and longing for that resting place i know you've met people probably who don't know the lord that are that are restless they have they, they're restless in their soul because they're seeking there's echoes of eden in all of us every human being that is born and we're we're longing for home just like we long to go home on holidays we long for home and there's that sense that we all long for that, that eternal home that God has made for us. So Adam leaves the house of God eastward of Eden. The Bible says he's, he's, he's put out of the garden, and there's a gate there. There's two cherubim that are stationed there, and Adam is on the other side of that gate. Adam and Eve are on the other side of that gate, and they can't come back into God's home. But God's not satisfied with that. God's not done, and so God wants to bring man back home. And so from that point on in the Bible... I used this phrase in the earlier service. It's a, it's a, it's a simpler phrase than, or uh, term than, than what it sounds like. The meta-narrative of the Bible. Meta means big, large, and narrative means story. It's the big story, in other words. It's, it's what's, what's the big story of the Bible? If you know the big story, then all the bits and pieces make sense. And so if you know the big story, you have to know the big story. The big story of the Bible is, is God now, from the rest from this point in time in which Adam is now exiled from home, the big story is God trying to bring man back home. And so in the book of Exodus, we find God starting to do that by telling Moses, tell your labors, tell your people. He says this in uh, Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And so God's not satisfied being alone. He still wants to make his home on earth, but now he has to do it in a, in a different way until, until, of course, Jesus comes and makes it all better and, and tears that veil from, uh, from 
uh, top to bottom. So, but, but now God says, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And so God ordered that the tabernacle, when it is built, the temple it is built, is like a mini Garden of Eden. And, and you have the, God, God said, I want the gates to face east, just like Adam and Eve were exiled on outside the gates eastward of Eden. And God wanted the tabernacle and the temple to face east, and the Holy of Holies would be where God would dwell. And one time a year, one time a year, the high priest who represented all the people, like an Adam, like Adam, would be allowed to come into that veil where the two cherubim were embroidered on that veil to go into the veil and finally come back home. And one time a year, God reminded them, this is what I want. I want to bring you back home. I want to bring you back home. I want to bring you back home. But that's just one time a year, and that's not good enough. And so God will continue to work towards resolving this uh, situation. So, so uh, the rest of the Bible is about God providing a way for man to come back home. And that's only going to happen through what I want to call this morning redemption. That's the title of my message this morning. The whole Bible seems to be filled with redemptive stories. I love that. That's why I said if you, if you understand the big picture, then all these stories make sense. All of this is about God redeeming man and bringing, and bringing man back home and back into his presence. And so the whole Bible is filled with prodigals coming home, of people being restored, of people being transformed. What I want to call again this morning, redemption. Now, I've made a case for this, and this is something the Lord showed to me a number of years ago, and I'll talk about the personal side of this in just a moment. But redemption is something that we all crave as, as human beings, in a way because we all have a stake in it, because we are all part of that. Uh, <laughs> I told, I told, I'll just a little side note here. I told Gabe a few months ago, I said, I'm working on a sermon I'll probably never preach because I don't really have the opportunity to preach anymore. And I even asked him when he first asked me to preach, I said, man, it's down to two. I said, would it be okay if I preach one sermon, early service, and the second sermon, different sermon, the second? Anyway, I, I gave up on that. But I was working on a sermon called, I said, I got a title for it. It's the Adams family. <laughs> Not Adams uh, possessive, but Adams plural, because there was the first Adam and there was the last Adam. Not the second Adam. Don't call it the second Adam, because the Bible calls him the last Adam. There's a reason for that, because there were a lot of Adams in between. And second Adam implies there could be a third, and there's not a third. He's the last Adam. But you're either in one or the other. You're either in the first Adam or you're in the last Adam. Okay? Which family are you in? Which Adam's family are you in? So that's important. That's an important distinction. But we, we feel, because we, are, we were all part of the original Adam family, we feel that loss, we feel that exile, and we feel that desire to come back home, and therefore we all desire and crave redemption. We, we, we crave for it in the stories, the books that we read. We, we crave it in, in the movies that we watch. And we not only want it, but we can't wait for it. We can't wait for it to somehow resolve. We have to have this redemption because it gives us hope. And most movies that do very, very well have redemption in the end, the happily ever after endings. And those rare times that they don't, 
Have you ever left a movie feeling dissatisfied and almost wanting to rewrite the ending because it didn't satisfy you? Think, what happened after this? There, there has to be some resolution to this. And so you think, oh, they probably did this. And so you kind of rewrite the ending because we, we go away feeling depressed almost and uncomfortable if there's not redemption at the end of the stories. It's like we need a better ending. And it's almost like the story is not over until there is a redemptive point at the, begin, at the end. We've wanted this from the beginning. In the very beginning, God showed us that where there is chaos, the earth was without form, chaotic. So what does God do? He starts bringing order. And since we're made in the image of God, we want order. Where there's chaos, how many of you want order in your, in your uh, closets and in your garages? We want order. We want, we want it to be set right where there was emptiness without, uh, without order and, without, and void. Where there's emptiness, we want it to be filled. What does God do? He begins to fill the earth and with teeming with life. And where there was darkness, he said, let there be light. So from the very beginning, we're made in his image and we want that redemption. We want uh, the darkness to be chased away. We want the man, the woman to be the sin to be forgiven. We want the bad guy to become good. We want the alcoholic father to reconcile with his children. We want the loser to become a winner. We want the homeless to find a home. We want the marriage to be reconciled. We want the cancer to be healed. We want those things because we want them in our own stories. We want them in our own families. We want them in our own children and our grandchildren. We all want redemption but I, I believe at the same time we don't fully and completely grasp it because I find myself always in, in wonder and awe at redemption in the Bible. It astonishes me sometimes. I would like to say I'm amazed at it, but that's an overused word. Uh, well, how do you say it? It's, it's, it's almost unbelievable, but, but it, it's there and it's, it has to be believable. So you look at these stories and you think, how could God do that? I wouldn't do that if I was God. I wouldn't change that or transform that. Even though we want them in our stories, we still find ourselves uh, astonished by it. I, I shared earlier that Adam and Eve failed in the garden, but, but they had that redemptive moment when, when God came and gave that wonderful promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he promises that someone would come, the seed of the woman would come and conquer, crush the head of the, of the seed of the serpent. And that's a wonderful promise. And, and then Adam calls Eve's name, uh, calls his, his wife's name Eve because he, he makes that connection and he says she's going to be the mother of all living, not the mother of all dying. Even though the next few chapters said, and he died and he died and he died, yet he still said, okay, it's supposed to come from the seed of the woman, so she's going to be called the, the, the mother of all living. So there's, uh, there's a redemptive moment there. And then we have... Peter, who denies Jesus three times, and that third time catches Jesus' eye, and they make their eyes make contact. And what what did those eyes look like, man? I, I've I've pondered that so many times. What did what did Peter see in Jesus' eyes when he they made contact on that third denial? It must have crushed him in his spirit. And yet, when Jesus is resurrected, God sends the angel to. To Mary and says go tell Peter in a way go, go go get Peter make sure Peter knows it's okay he said go get the disciples and Peter Peter's the only one they na he named 
Why? Because he knew that Peter would have the hardest time coming back home. And, and sometimes it's hard to come back home because we don't feel like we deserve it. We've denied one too many times or we've grasped for something we shouldn't have or we've, we've done those kinds of things and, and we need God to call our name out and say, it's okay, Michael. It's okay, Peter. You can come back home. And Moses, of course, murders an Egyptian, runs for his life, and then he has that redemptive moment, the burning bush, and God restores him to greatness. And so you have these redemptive stories in the Bible. David has a moral failure. I looked it up yesterday. David had eight wives and 18 children. And, of course, he has that adulterous affair with Bathsheba, and he loses his first... his his uh, newborn son with Bathsheba as a result. But God redeems a situation by placing the son of David and Bathsheba, not the son of David and Abigail or the son of David and Michal, but the son of David and Bathsheba on the throne. His name is Solomon. That's redemption in my opinion. He could have used any of his other wives and any, other, uh, any of the other children, but he uses what had begun as an illicit affair and brings forth Solomon, the great Solomon. And so even though we have countless examples of this in the Bible and the history of humanity, it's still hard for us and we struggle to believe it for ourselves and, and, and sometimes we have a doubts when it comes to our own stories, but also... Sometimes we have a hard time imaging it to other people. We have a hard time. Sometimes we struggle with wanting redemption for somebody, especially somebody we don't like or somebody who's done us wrong. And I want to confess that there was a period in my time that I resisted redemption for a family member. And I struggled with this and it affected me in every way possible, physically, emotionally, spiritually and then god god just i i struggled i looked at a thesaurus i'm i, I like words and so i tr struggled to find a word that would describe how god attacked me or smothered me or overwhelmed me or barraged me with this with his whole thing about redemption because i needed it and it's almost like i couldn't get away from it and every single day i got up i thought about redemption even though i wasn't feeling that I, I, I kept hearing that from God to the point that I even a few times broke out into the old hymn, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It, Redeemed by the Blood of the Lamb. You know, the old hymn that I grew up with as a, as a young boy because redemption was everywhere I turned around and, and, and I preached on that uh, at a very significant time and if, if all the messages, and I figured one day I probably have preached 3,500 messages and none of them really are ever the same i create new ones but so they're all new but if i were to say the one sermon that i preached that sticks in my mind more than any of the other 3500s it was the is the story of redemption that god spoke to me uh about what however many 10 i listened to the tape just the other day but anyway that god just bombarded me with redemption it involved our firstborn son jeremiah 
Lori and I had thought we had done everything right. We homeschooled our, our uh, children. We, we were very guarded about their relationships. We didn't let them date. Um, we raised them in a church with a, with a fantastic pastor. Um, <laughs> I baptized Jeremiah. He was growing in the Lord. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he, he was speaking the word of the Lord to people way beyond his youth. He would go to adults and speak the word of the Lord to him because the adults would come and say, let me tell you what your son said to us. Uh, he had a prophetic nature about him. He, he, uh, after, after he graduated from high school, he attended a missionary training school. He spent three months in Russia where he, by the way, met uh, Misha and Stephanie of this church. We discovered that one day where we were talking to him. I said, where's your accent? He said, Russia. I said, oh, my son was in Irkutsk. You know, after he graduated from high school, and he said, what's his name? And I said, he said, I've got a picture of the two of us with our arms around each other. And he sent it to me later that afternoon. Small world. So he spent three months there. He learned how to play the guitar, had a phenom has a phenomenal voice. He wrote, uh, at one time, I think he told me he'd written a thousand worship songs. He co-produced a CD of his own original material. He was married with four children, living in Austin, working at a great job, and all was well in our minds, in our home, in our thinking, and our hearts were greatly rejoicing for all of that until one day it wasn't. And one day he called me on my cell phone. I was, uh, we were going, Lori and I were going home from someplace in Fredericksburg. We were just a few blocks from our house. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget where I was at when that phone call came through. And he said with choking back tears, voice quivering, he said, he said, Dana, Daddy, I hope that one day you can find it in your heart to forgive me. He said, but I'm leaving my wife. His wa leaving his wife of 11 years because he had found someone else. And that devastated me. I tried to keep calm. She couldn't hear what was going on on the other end of that conversation. I knew her well enough that I better wait till we got home. Um, we went into the house. She sat on the couch. I shared the news with her. I watched her crumple to the floor and witnessed her sob like I'd never seen her before in my entire life. And at that moment, I hated what he had done. And I hated the sin. And I felt like I had lost my son at that moment. This happened three days before Easter, I, I, uh, which is one of the most important uh, mess, you know, Sundays for a pastor. I called him back. I begged him not to make a rash decision until we got to talk. He promised he would. I don't know how I got through that Easter sermon. I muddled my way through it. I couldn't think about what to share other than just sharing from the depths of my own heart, which was a heart that wanted hope and wanted, wanted to see something better, wanted to see redemption. And so I preached a sermon out of Job chapter 14, verse 7, uh, which was my wearing, my wearing my heart on my sleeve. I, 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 the people didn't know what the... What I was going through, they hadn't heard yet. But I preached, for there is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again and its shoots will not fail. 
because that's what I wanted and that was my heart's desire. And so I met with him that afternoon after, East, after the Easter sermon and we spent three hours together and I begged him and I pleaded with him as a father and I said, you know, you, you, you know I've taught you the way of the Lord. And he agreed. He said, yeah, I know, I'm wired. I know, I know I'm wired for that. And he promised me that he would break it off. So he went to work the next day in Austin and called me up crying, saying he had broken it off with her. But by Friday, he was back with her and he had made his decision. And I, it broke me. And um, my dad, my dad had had a, wall hanging in his office for as long as I can remember. I think it was in my 20s when I first saw it hanging in his office. It now hangs in my mom's living room and I asked her if I could inherit it. It was from 3 John chapter 1 verse 4 which says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And I remembered when I read that in my 20s, I thought that's what I want for my own children. And that became my my desire and my my want for my children. And and uh, so you could say in some ways my dad got that. Um, he was a pastor. I was a pastor. My younger brother was a pastor. My older brother supervised uh, Goodland Presbyterian Boys Home for many, many years and preached often. And it's not that I wanted my son to preach, but I at least wanted him to walk with God, you know, and, and serve the Lord and have the fear of the Lord. And yet here we were, I was crushed. And after my uh, Easter message, uh, like I said, he, he promised he would and then he didn't. And so for me, it was game on. And I tried my best for two years. I could tell you some of the things I did and you would probably gasp. <laughs> but I did everything I possibly could in the flesh and in the spirit to, to stop it, to change it. And I finally told Lori, I said, there's one last last uh, attempt, and if this fails, I'm done. I'm done. I won't keep, I won't keep pushing this, and, 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 and so it failed. We prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed until we had no words any longer. I finally decided if David can, if David can write out his prayers, I'm going to write out my prayers, so I wrote out a page-long prayer to the Lord about my son. I kept it in my nightstand drawer. Every morning we woke up and we read that prayer to God. And yet nothing changed. Nothing seemed to be working. And I felt like God. I felt like God said in the book of Jeremiah, what more can I do? At one point God said, what more can I? Can you imagine God saying that? Come on, he's God. Surely he's got something else up his sleeve. But when, he's, when you're dealing with people sometimes, God said, I have stretched out my arms all day long to a people who refuse and resist. And even Jesus said uh, that how often I would have gathered you, and you, but you would not. And God says, what more can I do? I barely spoke to my son for two years, which broke my wife's heart. It affected my health. I was in the ER for the first time with chest pains in my entire life with chest pains. I believe it affected my ministry. As I said, I almost re resigned the ministry over this. And Lori and I, and, and I had a little bit of a disclaimer in the first service, I'll say it again. I, I apologize if this offends you, but we're just being raw and honest. And Lori and I used to call Amanda, this woman, we used to call her the devil woman. 
And we're just being raw and honest. Now, there was, it was half joking, but half serious. And, uh, and, and, uh, and let me just remind you that Jesus one time called Peter Satan. So there you go. <laughs> we also said we'd never welcome her into our home. At one point, Jeremiah tried to do the right thing and, and reconcile with his ex, but by then, she, it was too late. She had already found somebody else and was involved with him, and so that wasn't going to happen. But I found myself completely closed off to him, and the damage was done. My son was moving east of Eden. He was going away from my presence, from, from home. And I was brokenhearted and crushed, but at the same time, I found my heart resistant Lori wanted me, she would talk with Jeremiah, but I, I kept saying, what do I talk to him about, the weather? You know, there's this big elephant in the room. Do I talk to him about computers? You know, what do I, I can't just pretend like this isn't happening, and so I wouldn't talk to him. I, so there's something in me resisting. And then one Sunday morning, God started the wheels of redemption in my heart, and lo and behold, I kept thinking about redemption for them, and I didn't think about redemption for me. Because there was something in my heart that was not imaging God quite right. You know, God does get angry. God does bring judgment. I was definitely feeling that part. But I wasn't feeling the other side. Although at, at times I would tell people that I felt like that sometimes hugging my son with one arm and punching him in the stomach with the other. There was that, there's that tension, but there's that tension even in God. And somehow the hugging always wins out with God. Somehow it always wins out with God. So it was a little over two years later that um, I, was, um, I was preaching. I was preaching my second Father's Day message since Jeremiah gave me this announcement. We hadn't been speaking for two years. And that morning, the preacher got preached to. I was preaching, and, and I was uh, put together some kind of message. And I, and I was talking about, the, the title of the message was Fathers Who Are There. And in this message, I talked about several, several remarks that Jesus made about his father because I was trying to get fathers to understand if Jesus said this about his father, then these are the kind of, this is the kind of father we need to be. If Jesus commended his father on this or this or this, then that tells us what kind of fathers we need to be to our own sons. And so I was going through that methodically, and when I got to the very last point, uh, and it was talking about Jesus' confidence in in his father even to the grave that though jesus was about to walk through the valley of the shadow of death he would fear no evil why because of a verse that i believe jesus clung to it's a verse that 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 david's i mean jesus forefather david wrote about in psalm 16 it's a verse that 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 peter would take in psalm 2 and put it in the lips of jesus because he says David spoke of him, and then he quoted this verse in Psalm 16. So he, he was linking that verse to Jesus. And, and I believe it's a verse that Jesus read one day, and, and he read it, and he, and he said, this is about me, and this is a promise of my Father to me. And the verse is Psalm 16, verse 10, which says, you will not abandon my soul 
to the grave. And this is what Jesus was saying of his father. I know my dad's not going to abandon my soul to the grave. I have that confidence. I can go to the grave and know that he will not abandon my soul to the grave. And I'm preaching this to the fathers. And I got this cassette out the other day because I, I remembered when it, about when it was. And I looked it up and, and I pulled this cassette out because I know that's when things began to change for me. And I played it again. And I got choked up on the tape and I got choked up again listening to it because I know this was the moment when I was compelling fathers, don't, let, don't abandon your son's soul to the grave that God put his finger on me and said, Michael, don't abandon your son's soul to the grave and I felt that and I felt that God was saying he's in a grave of guilt he's in a grave of despair he's in a grave of unforgiveness he's in a grave of sin and anger and, and all of that and don't let him die there so I left church and found him that day and I went to him and promised him I said I'm not going to abandon your soul to the grave. And I would like to say everything went back to normal from that point. It didn't, but I was okay because I began to change. My heart began to change. God began to redeem me. That would have been June, two years after he had said that to us. And not long after that, I don't know what Thanksgiving it was, a year or two later, Lori and I were talking in a restaurant and Lori asked me at one point, she said, what are you most thankful for this Thanksgiving, including family? And without hesitation, I said, Amanda. And I don't even know how that came out of my mouth, but I said it in tears. And I don't know where that came from, except that I knew God was changing me and redeeming my heart. So, I felt something of God's heart. I felt what God must feel. Um, there's, a, there's a passage where it talks about the, the, the times in God's heart where on the one hand he's saying, I'm going to bring judgment. and No, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm going to bring I can't. And he does this in the book of Hosea. And if you read the context of this, we're not going to read the whole context, but just before God says what I'm about to read to you, what, just before he, he says this, he's talking about bringing swords against his people, Ephraim. I'm going to bring swords against you. And then he says this in Hosea 11, verse 8, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Agma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused, and I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. <coughs> For I'm God and not man. The Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. God wants his son to come back home. I wanted my son to come back home. I can say now that the relationship I have with him is more than mended. It is far better than it's ever been. He's my best friend. I'm proud of him. I told him that just randomly uh, months ago. I just sent him a text and I'm proud of you. 
Amanda is a wonderful addition to our family. She's a daughter to us. Jeremiah led worship in our church uh, just a couple of years before we left. Still anointed, greatly anointed. He leads a weekly home group in behalf of his church. I said I wanted to return to the prodigal son story. I didn't get to do this in the first service, and I'm eight minutes past now, but that's what you get for sleeping in. <laughs> this is a retelling of the prodigal son story by Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About, About Grace. Just a disclaimer, I've never been able to read this privately or publicly without weeping. Uh, let's see if I can get through it today. I, I read this again for the first time that I... That that I had uh, first time in, in a couple of years and I cried like a baby uh, so here, here we go this is uh, Philip Yancey's retelling of the prodigal son in his book What's So Amazing About Grace and I'll probably cry at parts you would not normally cry at because I know what's coming and you don't <laughs> a young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan her parents See, already, and I'm not even a tenth of the way through the story. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They grounded her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she... She acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, drugs, and violence in downtown Detroit. She concludes that that is probably the last place her parents will look for her, California maybe or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. See, since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks excuse me, occasionally she thinks about the folks back home. But their lives now seem so boring that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a big scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have you seen this child? But by now, she has blonde hair and with all the makeup and body piercing jewelry, she wears nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. 
After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes, her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspapers she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts, a synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry excuse me, when a million cherry trees bloom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossoming trees in the chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? She says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing. And she knows in a flash that more than anything else, in the world, she wants to go home. I haven't gotten to the cry part yet. <laughs> the three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, and during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? Even if they are home, they, were probably, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them more time to, to recover, uh, to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between these worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the road and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest. A driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. 
That's all we have here, 15 minutes. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a, in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect and not not one of a thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 family members, brothers and sisters and great aunts, and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot, they're all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats, blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She looks through the tears and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her, says, Hush, child. We've got no time for that, no time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet is waiting for you at home. Let me share one last thing about my son. A few weeks ago, he called. And uh, like I said, he's doing quite well. He called. He'd been at his pastor's house uh, chatting with him, doing some videography for him, and, and was chatting with him, and he was telling the pastor about uh, his granddad being a pastor and me being a pastor and his uncle being a pastor, et cetera, and, and uh, uh, worship team can come up at this time. And he said, I'd, I'm on my way home, he said, I started crying. I said, very tearful eyes. He said, Dad, he said, I feel like God's calling me to be a pastor, to preach. He's 47 years old. It's the greatest thing I could hear. I, 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 some people might say he doesn't deserve to do that. Well, David deserved to write the Psalms after his sins. You know, and there's so many in the, in the scriptures that God sat and anointed and they became great men and women of God after their sin because of the word called redemption. And God is about redemption. And it blessed me. And I have a new favorite verse now. I came across this two or three days later. And here it is. Isaiah 59, verse 29. But as, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth, Michael Derringer, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your children or out of the mouth of your children's children, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Stand with me for just a moment. I, I, uh, I feel like that the Lord is speaking to hearts this morning and speaking to prodigals. Um, I spoke with one or two afterwards that said, I'm, 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 that, I'm that person. I, I'm the prodigal trying to make his way back home. 
Some of you may be prodigals this morning. But know this, that the scripture says in Psalm 90, verse 1, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. God is, God is your home. God is the place you'll find rest. God is the place where you'll find rest for your soul. I also want to encourage those of you who, who maybe have prodigals, have sons or daughters or family members that need to come home. I want to encourage you that God is welcoming, welcoming them today. God is opening his arms. He's saying, I have stretched out my arms for them. We need to believe God for that. I want those who, who, uh, those who come and pray, uh, come forward. And if you need prayer for anything, if you need, if you need to just say, pray with me, agree with me for my son or my daughter, or if you're a prodigal that just needs to say, pray with me, I, I, I want to come home, then I want to encourage you to come forward as the worshipers sing.